Welcome back. My name is Isabel Gates, and this is the Spacemakers Podcast. If you are joining our space for the very first time, we always kindly ask your listeners to go back to episode zero and hear that one first before jumping around to whatever topic. This is the second episode in our deconstruction series. We kicked it off with an episode with just us space makers explaining what we mean by the term deconstruction, so make sure you check out that episode as well. But we didn't want you to hear about the concept of deconstruction just from us, of course. So we called in one of the most respected names in our international family of churches, Douglas Jacobi. Douglas is a Bible teacher with degrees from Drew, Harvard, and Duke, and has written over 35 books, has had over 20 years of ministry experience all over the world, and has spoken in over 100 universities, 500 cities, and 126 nations. He's kind of a big deal in our corner of Christianity. So we've had this interview planned basically since the start of this podcast, and we ended up recording a couple months ago. Since tackling deconstruction is such a tricky thing, we wanted to hear about it from one of the most respected voices in biblical study in the International Churches of Christ. Once we started recording, however, we realized how differently people even define the term. In the beginning of this episode, you'll hear Doug explain his definition of the term, and then Rachel chiming in to explain what we mean by it. And it was really cool, because in the end, we realized we did share a lot of common ground. It was just that the cultural context of us coming from different generations led us to interpreting this word very differently. Turns out, when he heard our definition, he actually liked the concept. You'll hear us on this episode question whether or not we even should use the term deconstruction in the end because of the confusion it could cause. But when we regrouped after this call, we made the decision to create what we ended up releasing as the first episode in the series, the one we released just before this. We just decided in the end to roll with the term deconstruction, but explain it as best as we could in that episode, just to keep it simple and hope that clearing up these things could build more bridges and foster more understanding with people who hold different perspectives. So yeah, we're going to dive deeper into questions about deconstruction today. We're going to discuss with Douglas how to question and when to question and how to question well and what to do if people are trying to stop you from questioning. We're going to talk about digging deeper into the Bible and what to do when people within a church disagree on biblical concepts. And we're going to learn a little bit about Douglas's personal deconstruction journey as well. As usual, when we end up having way too much content for one episode, we are dividing this one into two parts. This first one will be more of a one-on-one interview, and the second part will dive deeper into the spacemaker's responses and questions. For this episode, Alex is going to be moderating since he had more of a personal relationship with Douglas. Enjoy the calming British accent. Well, hello guys. Um, Alex here. I'm excited to be with the Douglas Jacoby. Um, Jacoby, Jacoby, that's always an ongoing debate, but uh, it's exciting to be with him. And we wanted to kind of introduce the idea of deconstruction. And even, even as I say that, there are probably ideas, perceptions, associations you have with that in your mind. Um, some might be good, some might be bad, um, but we want to kind of explore 
along the way. Um, and of course, we, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to mature from this process. So, yeah. How are you, Douglas? Of course, of course. So let's let's jump in. Um, what what is deconstruction to you, and and what role do you think it should have in a Christian's life? Deconstruction is a it's really a word from philosophy, but it's been applied to many areas of uh, of discourse, many important areas, and it, it has to do with. Uh, let's say, reading suspiciously. There's a, a phrase, the hermeneutic of suspicion. So you don't necessarily trust what you read. You're not sure you trust the motives of the person who wrote it. You read between the lines, uh, which is, of course, means there's a danger of reading something into it that's not there. That's There's another fancy word for that, intertextuality. Re reading between the lines of text, intertextuality. And uh, the, the basic idea is that uh, people write with an agenda. They write with a certain bias, and you shouldn't buy that. You should, you should think it over and ask, what do they benefit by this story? By what they're saying, by the way they spin it, you know, what, you know the kind of uh, things they emphasize, the things they, they don't emphasize. And I think as far as this goes, that's that's good. I mean, we are supposed to read critically. Of course, this has a little bit of, of a, there's a problem biblically if you respect the text of the Bible. Well, yes, we need to read carefully, but are we supposed to be suspicious of the Bible itself or of the concept of revealed truth? But there are some real limits here. Uh, and for not careful, you end up with no faith at all. Yeah, it is challenging because we want to respect and honor the Bible. Like we, 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 it's, it's the, the instruction manual for us as Christians. Um, and we kind of have to trust that God knows best in, in creating his word, you know, and maybe it has things that we don't always understand. Um, so it, it's, in a way, it's natural as humans to have this curiosity for everything to make sense in, in our own understanding. But then what is faith, right? Like if we, there has to, there has to be an element of not knowing and, and being able to, to do something without, you know, really, really understanding it. Sure, surely that's a, a component of faith. But I, I think one of the dilemmas I think a lot of young people face is we're in a space for maybe the first time in history where information is so accessible. Like the, the, the idea that, you know, we can go on the internet and just search up, you got Wikipedia or Google, whatever like you use. And I, I think that creates this dilemma where you can just expect, I want the answer to everything. I shouldn't have to wonder if something is true or not, if maybe whether I have to test something, but that I can just search it up and I expect to know the answer. And I think that that creates a, yeah, it, a dilemma for us as to ask someone when, when everything can be so clear and convenient to ask someone 
to say, hey, are you willing to have faith and trust something that you cannot see and that is practically impossible to, to understand? Let me turn this around. I could say, are you willing to exercise this practice, this hermeneutic of suspicion when you go to the internet? You know, will you think critically about what you find and not just search until you find what you want to hear? Because uh, the, the, the gullibility is just dumbfounding. And you, you add that to a widespread biblical illiteracy. It's pretty widespread, at least in the churches I, I move in. <laughs> Very few people know much Bible. Uh, yeah, you could convince yourself of almost anything if you want to. Yeah. So then I guess kind of somewhat practically, how do you navigate between, you know, truth and uh, you know, when it comes to faith and living your life as a Christian, how, how do you make sense of, of some of these things? You know, you've asked me before, what place should deconstructionism play in the Christian's life? And I certainly think we need to be good readers, but I'm almost tempted to say it should play no place in our life insofar as deconstructionism assumes that we can't really know the truth about God, that God's word is the product of those who had power, those who wrote it, who suppressed others in order to write it. And, and really, we should be suspicious of all authority. Now, if that's our attitude, we're going to have a real conflict. On the other hand, what I would probably say, uh, rather than just throwing it out the window completely, I think we need to have a close reading of scripture, a careful reading. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You kind of questioning what assumptions are there with the word itself. Um, and, and maybe there's a better word, but I think what we, I imagine we can all agree on is any reading of the Bible will have our own assumptions, biases, cultural lens like however you want to call it it always there's always a degree of interpretation and i think yeah what i appreciate is you're saying actually context is important um in understanding okay not not oh how do i read it today in my translation but how would the original listeners have heard it at the time like the the real audience that was them that's so important I just finished recording a series on this yesterday, um, which grew out of a talk I did in, for Albania a, a few weeks back. And I'm, I'm giving all these principles on how we study carefully so that we're we're informed biblically as we talk about different issues. And in the time after, one of the uh, sisters said, well, I don't see why we need all this. Why can't we just read it and obey it? Because we're not supposed to interpret Second Peter 1.20 which is not what that passage says. <laughs> it's almost the opposite. Her, her view, which I call the naive view, is which simply there's no interpretation required. The Bible means what it says, says what it means. Just read it and obey it. Well, well, then why are we even having a talk if it's that obvious? And the conclusion you come to if you have a naive view of Scripture is, well, firstly, theology is unnecessary. But you come to the conclusion that those who disagree with you must be stupid or they're wicked. The problem is, I know a lot of people I disagree with, and I don't think they're wicked. I don't think they're stupid. I don't think we can simplify things quite so much. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I think how we 
how we view the Bible is is so foundational to our lives as Christians. And maybe I can ask, what, I don't know, one of the girls just to, for for one of you, like how you've what what do you consider, you know, deconstruction in your experience? Um, and we'll, we'll kind of jump around. I'll go. Um, it's Rachel for those who don't know, <laughs> but I think obviously. Doug Douglas, thank you so much for giving that definition. Um, yeah, even though it kind of had like a weird root in like linguistics, I think it was about language was actually the root of the deconstruction movement, right? Um, I think the way that it's kind of evolved over time and in our kind of space and amongst our peers, I think maybe a better term would just be like spiritual formation and like constant learning and unlearning. And I think Something that are, I've heard a lot just from our generation and peers who are going through the process and my, and me going through that process is I think, I very rarely think that people are deconstructing core doctrine. People do, but I think in terms of like Jesus and the gospel, like that's pretty set, but I think it's more so just the sifting through, okay, there's discrepancies between whether it be our experiences in the church and how we kind of read the Bible in its original context. There's a lot of resources that help us to learn how to read the Bible in our original context. Um, and so it's kind of, it's, I feel like the deconstruction movement of today is, is twofold, maybe threefold. And just, it's not just doctrine, but it's also culture and experiences with religiosity and kind of holding the tensions of, um, okay, what is our culture saying about there's so much nuance in society right now. Like everything, like what you were saying, everything is, is not binary. There is no absolute truth anymore. There's just like a culture of like more relativism, which is turning into tribalism and it's a whole thing. And so I think it's just kind of holding those tensions and, and um, something that I've tried to do in my own deconstruction journey is okay. Through the lens of the gospel um, and through the redemptive narrative of Jesus, how do these, concepts, ideals, theological precepts, like how do they come into play into our life? Right. Yeah, Rachel, see, I would call that a theological reading. I mean, it, deconstructionism, you're supposed to be, of course, be suspicious of your own, you're not objective yourself, but you're also not supposed to trust the writers because they have an agenda, an ax to grind. But of course, every book of the Bible has an agenda. Otherwise, it would have nothing worth offering. I mean, it's not wrong to have an agenda. But what you're taught when you talk about spiritual formation and you talk about reading through the lens of you know the redemption, redemptive gospel, that's just good theology. I love hearing that. But in deconstructionists would say, and why does she say that? How has she been conditioned? Why is she conditioned to think that way? And how come she's why the gospel? Why not? One of the various forms of Buddhism, or how about the Wiccans? Are you ruling out the witches and warlocks? You know, are you witchophobic? Deconstruction, if we're not really careful, takes us to a point where we don't trust anything. And I know you're not saying that, but uh, yeah, applying it to our lives, that's, that's important. Alex, she gave a great answer, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think... Um... Again, we we spend our time reading a culture that is very unfamiliar to us. Uh, I, I, you know, when Jesus' parables, they're often about farming 
I don't think any of us here have much experience about with farming. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I mowed my lawn last week. <laughs> so then so, sowing seeds and yeah, but like we, we do have our, yeah, our, our own kind of experience. Um, and I, I guess to kind of think about, I think there are a lot of, like what Rachel said, there are a lot of um, core doctrine doctrines which people agree on. But then I think there are a lot of wider issues. M maybe you put them under disputable matters, which I think people are kind of struggling to, can we coexist in this space with different right. views? Um, and, and there are obvious examples of like, gender roles um or you know how we practice church um or just uh, yeah uh, i mean we we see that all throughout christianity over the last 2000 years and and it's in a way bad to see okay how many denominations have formed and it kind of fra fractures as a result of you know do you sing worship songs on 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 a sunday service like it, things which seem trivial at the time but cause these these great chasms um or, or they how do we seem navigate major at the time but they seem trivial now mm. when we look back you know i i like i speak of the, the topography of scripture i don't know if you've heard me use that term but a flat reading of scripture will say that well all commands are equally important which I think is actually contradicted by both testaments. All sins are equally serious, which I think is manifest nonsense. All parts of the Bible are equally important and relevant. And I think that's not true either. It depends who you are and where you are. It, in truth, it's not flat. Some things are loom like mountains and some things are like valleys. There's a topography of the Bible. And if you're if you read it in a boring way, you'll just you won't know what to do with it when you try to make everything equally important, equally relevant. If you look at it the way it actually is, uh, there, there are clearly some highs and lows, and that frees us up. A paradigm I've used, I guess, the last 20 years is the, it's the three circles. So the inner circle is the core non-negotiable teachings. You know, Jesus is Lord. There's a second circle, which I call the important not that the inner core, inner circle isn't important, but the second thing is it's important. And it's important for us to know that Jesus was Jewish. Now, if you if you don't know that, then you're certainly not going to understand how he fulfilled the scripture. You're going to get a lot of things wrong. There are some serious consequences on that one. I wouldn't say you're a non-Christian, though. And then there's a third circle, what is more peripheral. Well, do you have to know he was born in Bethlehem? Well, it helps because of the connection with David. Do, do you have to know he was born before Herod the Great died, thus probably around 6 BC. You don't have to know that. So if you've got those three circles, then what do we do with things in the middle circle? The central we seem to agree on. And there are a lot of things we think that are neither here nor there. Well, they're probably there, but it's not a big deal. But that middle circle with the important is what conservative groups and fundamentalist groups um, are very bad at. And I would say in my own faith tradition, we've done horribly at staying connected when we disagree on important things, the, the middle circle. Does that make sense? So I think that in a mathematical way, that ties in with the notion of topography. Yeah, no, and definitely, because I, I think, 
yeah, we, we, as a lot of us having grown up in church, we, we inherit the, these, these fractures, these disconnects. And I think I, I can feel a bit lost sometimes of, you know, are we really that different to this church that goes by a different name? Um, like, or do I have to assume, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and they're not, uh, you know, I think just these ideas are, are so dangerous. Um, and to be honest, I think a lot of, a lot of us, we want to be mending those, those wounds. We, we want to be bridging those gaps. Um, but there's so much context that kind of lies behind the scenes. Uh, you know, how, how do we get through, should, should uh, maybe even a question of, should these issues uh, in that kind of middle ring you talked about stop us from, you know, congregating together, meeting together, you know, sharing the same spaces? Yeah. You, you know, I don't think so. I don't think it should. We're just, we're just bad at that. Our anxiety level goes way up. It's much easier to dismiss something as trivial or to say, well, that one, that goes in the center with the most important, you know, the crucial, the essential. It's easier to make it all or nothing. But to have nuance, to have texture, to have layers, which much better matches reality and the character of Scripture itself, uh, takes a lot more work. And it, it means we need more training in how to interpret with what Rachel was pointing at. And I think it also means there needs to be a much higher standard for training of those who do the teaching and preaching in a church. Because we've labored, it wasn't, the, in, our, in our churches over the last 50 I guess it's now been 54 years. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a better attitude about learning. But it seemed that from the late 80s and the 90s, theology was dissed. The idea was, you know, don't you don't need theology. You probably don't even need just to fit university. Just get out and move on the mission team somewhere. And there's been an anti-intellectual attitude and an anti-theological attitude, which is, I think has really come back to bite, to bite us. No, definitely. And I think it's it's hard for us as young people when we do have the curiosity to to learn uh, and and dig deeper. But maybe that's met with some suspicion. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But I guess even kind of, you know, speaking to, to people out there who they feel they can't explore these these issues for themselves, kind of. What, what, what would be your advice of, you know, kind of how to go through that in their own lives? But they, but they cannot explore the issues themselves? As in, um, they don't feel <clears throat> comfortable in their, their church environment to be able to question and wrestle with these things. Well, you have to talk about these things or you'll go crazy. I mean, if it's a repressive environment where you really can't bring anything up, that's not healthy. And you have to decide when enough is enough, but eventually you need to get out of that kind of environment. I mean, I've always preached publicly, you know, if you're in a church where you're not allowed to ask questions, or if you do, and they say, stop questioning, just believe, you need to get out of there and be with people who welcome the questions. Of course, you could quote me and support all kinds of sedition and rebellion, and that's not my intention at all. Uh, but I, I think Part, part of the reason questions are not always welcomed is that those looked to for the answers are not trained 
they don't know the basics of church history or interpretation. So they're not able to give an answer. So they get anxious and then it's easy to say, well, you ask a lot of questions or you're proud or you have a bad heart. Not realizing it took a lot of guts for you to ask that question, and probably you have a good heart, and you would have left last year. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, people can can relate to. Yeah, having having natural questions and wanting to, it, it takes courage to question something you you seemingly know, like that you're familiar with. It's uncharted territory. Oh wow. I thought you were going to say it takes courage to question people who are twice your age. Well, that's also true. And that's true. But when you're questioning something that's so much a part of your identity, that's really hard. And that may take more courage than just having a disagreement with a church leader. Yeah. I mean, I think that's 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 a big part of, I would say, the the kind of energy behind this group is... The idea of okay, space makers. What? Why? And then we have a, you know, our first episode. We kind of talk about why we're we here. Why did we come together and feel that with this is a this is a missing kind of gap in the market as such? Um, because we want to be able to explore issues which we are genuinely wrestling with, and we have, I, I think, a healthy curiosity to understand. Um, but for some people they've when they've expressed actually I don't feel safe to do that in my my friendship group or my ministry uh, where do I go um having resources we we hope can can help people to you, you need somewhere to go I think in, in many churches it's just a question of finding the right people there may be some who won't listen or don't even understand the question but particularly in a medium or sized or larger church, there'll be, there'll be people who are thoughtful and you know, you've got to look for those people perhaps, uh, but they're often there. <laughs> you know, people ask me, well, is this a good church? And I'll say, well, what do you mean? Like in what way in this area, in this dimension, well, it depends what part of the church you're in over there. They're very good on this over here. They're weak on that, but they're really good on this. And it, it kind of depends. Uh, you know, I wish our strengths and weaknesses were uniform uh, geographically, <laughs> then you know exactly what aisle to find the item in in the supermarket, but you just don't know where you'll find it. Yeah. Well, so I guess kind of, we, we've talked uh, quite theoretically, but <clears throat> even very practically, what is an area where, you know, your view has changed over the years? Because I, and the context, I think for me, I'm having grown up in church, you, you're just, you're pretty much taught a consistent view of this is the way things are. This is what faith looks like. Um, but when you, you kind of, you reach an age of, okay, that's, that's all very well. But for me personally, like what, what does this mean? Like I have to have my own conviction at the end of the day, I can't live off the convictions of, of my parents uh, or my friends is a personal, maybe for you, an example of that. And Alex, you say you were brought up in the church. How old were you when you became a Christian? Almost 15. Yeah. Right. And um, were your parents always Christians during your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 
it would be quite different to my experience, not growing up in a Christian family. I was actually the first baptized in my family. Um, yeah. Well, I remember as a young Christian, a three-year-old Christian, I just started grad school. And there was a very bright seminarian at Harvard Divinity School. And he'd come to church with me. We met in, like, in uh, this was in Boston. And he really liked it. Uh, but he was talking about the social gospel, that people need, there's justice. And Amos talks about justice, and Micah talks about justice. And I remember what I told him, because it's what I had been trained in, that that's that's not important. The important thing is people getting saved. Now, I have a different view now. Probably my view on this has continued to change every year. As an eight-year-old Christian, I remember it changing quite dramatically. This was after a group of brothers went to India. And this was at the end of 1985. And we were blown away. We were shocked. We thought, this has got to be part of what we do. This has got to be part of our gospel, part of our message. Uh, and that that became, uh, within a few months, what we called it at that time, uh, love. Uh, a few years later, it became hope worldwide, which initially, um, I think, was extremely well received. It was so exciting to think, here we are, we're being responsive to new discoveries and being open. And of course, over time, programs tend to fossilize, don't they? But this that was maybe one of the first significant areas I had to back down in, if I can think of a number. And this is one as a 29-year-old Christian. This is back in 06. How I viewed outsiders, you may know what I mean. You know, They're not in your group, but boy, they're preaching the gospel and boy, they have quiet times. And that was the year I think my anxiety level started going down. Even when I was doing my 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 doctorate, finishing that off as a, uh, which was, um, this was in the 1990s, I didn't know how to process it. I met these people who seemed very godly, but we clearly taught very different things. And I, I just didn't know how to deal with it. I had to compartmentalize. A lot of men can do that easily. <laughs> it's the same tool you use to ignore important voices you hear. But I realized that Jesus said, you know, if he's not against you, they're, they're for you. And God will deal with them. You don't have to be right on everything. You don't have to judge everybody. Executive judgment, final judgment, is something the Lord does only. Now, you can hope that there'll be lots of exceptions on the judgment day. Boy, I hope there will be. We can't create that. We can't make that a reality. But it's not, it, just trust God on that. Otherwise, you're not going to see the good in people, and you'll never be able to say, you know, this, this one is not far from the kingdom of God. You'll, you won't give out any compliment. So that has changed. And then one last example was as a 40-year-old Christian, and I'm older than 40 as a Christian now, but I think my view on discipling changed a lot. I mean, what is discipleship in the Bible? It's basically our walk with Jesus. The Gospel of John, Jesus defines discipleship along um, there are three, three dimensions. One is remaining in his word. That has to do with obedience, right? So that's John 8. Then there's loving others as he loved us, John 13. And then there's uh, bearing fruit. I think that means living a productive life in John 15. That's what discipleship is. Now, many people hear the word discipleship. They think of discipling partners, you know, 
I remember when we changed to that in 1981, but in the earlier years, the first 14 years of the movement, they were called prayer partners. And it wasn't always one over one, often just people sharing, how are you? You pray together. And it was a bit more muddled, a bit more murky. And I think that was actually good. Uh, but the system kind of took over. So many people hear the word discipleship and they think, well, he disciples you and that guy disciples him and you're over this person and that person. And I just don't see any evidence for that kind of a system in, in any part of church history or in the New Testament. Now, I would say if, it, if it's helpful, if that's actually helping people, great. I'm not against it. But if it's hurting people, don't do it. And a conviction I think I've come to only in the last year or two, Alex, is that, you know, the Bible talks about people having different gifts and roles. It might be planting seed. It might be watering. Uh, some people have gifts of teaching. Not everyone can, quote, disciple somebody, whatever that means. I mean, even if you're very strong in one area as a mentor, maybe you, you give great advice interpersonally, you're good at relationships, or maybe you're good at finance, you're not going to find someone who is good at everything. So you're going to need many advisors anyway, as the book of Proverbs says, many advisors. Make plans. Don't limit yourself to one. That's a, that's a mistake. But even to just say that everyone can disciple someone else, I, I don't think that's right. Some people should never disciple other people. They've got too much baggage. They're going to abuse them. Someone's going to get hurt. So it doesn't mean we shouldn't help each other. We've got scores of passages, the one another passages, love and honor and serve one another and so forth. So we all need to be involved with each other. But when you have a system, a kind of a hierarchy, this is where people get hurt. And, I, and if you have that kind of a system in your ministry, uh, be careful with it. And if it's not really meeting the needs in a great way, abandon it. I mean, it, maybe it worked before, uh, but you don't see that in the New Testament itself. So those are, so, I mean, there are other things I changed my mind on, but I didn't, I was wondering what you would think about those. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, so interesting because I, again, it's like we, we have our own experience of, I mean, I'm 22, like probably uh, many, many changes will come in, in my lifetime that I've yet to see. Um, so it's exciting to kind of hear, okay, things that we assume maybe naively, oh, this is just the way it is. And it's always been like this. And so it should always be. Uh, I don't like that idea. I don't think anyone in the group really uh, trusts that kind of principle. I think we enjoy um, to be able to think and learn and, and grow. Uh, and uh, I guess final kind of point to, you know, before we open up, you know, you said uh, at one point you said, oh, my view on this area has changed every year. Right. Um, perhaps a cynic and I'm kind of, you know, devil's advocate, perhaps like a cynic would, would say, oh, it, you know, you're, you're being tossed back and forth or you're, you're immature for how, how can you, how can you be a good example, a role model if your view is, is changing all the time? Yeah, I would say, how can you be a good role model if your view isn't changing all the time? I mean, Paul says, I've, Philippians 3, I haven't arrived. Not that I've you know, become perfect, but okay, I push ahead, all right? I, I, this side of eternity, 
we're limited. And besides, if you're going back and forth, yeah, if you kept doubting God, then you would be tossed by the waves, as in the sense of James 1. Or if you're morally tossed up and down, and you can't figure out what's righteous, then you're tossed in the sense of Ephesians 4. Okay, but either I'm being tossed back, like I'm regressing consistently, or I'm being tossed forth forward, but I'm not going back and forth. I'm going, you know, maybe some wiggles in the curve, but in general, uh, I'm, I'm moving in certain clear directions. I'm not looping around. So I would say that's not that's not been what I've experienced. And a great enemy of Christian unity is a false confidence, the sense that we have to be certain about everything. And anyone who teaches something that I disagree with, that's a false teacher. And so I must disfellowship that person. <laughs> that actually, I mean, that's been done in many churches. You have fathers disfellowshipping sons because they disagreed over a fine point of the communion. I mean, this is just crazy. That's what I meant about that middle circle. There are going to be important things we don't see eye to eye on. Of course, the real problem is if someone says, I say this is important, but you're saying it's it's actually central. You know, they don't always fall so clearly into those three circles. That's just a paradigm. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that so much because I think, I mean, for me as a looking ahead on my life, I like to think there's much more to come. For me, it seems a bit, gloomy to think that everything is the same just for repeating itself um and and that i won't learn or grow or mature or change because things are just the way they are and that's the end of it like how do we how can we both get closer to god and, and connect with him more and and learn but then also assume we have all the answers so we don't need to question anything let's just accept it you know this is we've arrived uh, that that's so problematic um, yeah that's that, that's a great way to get people to join your church to tell them that you've arrived have nothing new to learn at all i mean it's so offensive not plus being very unlikely to be true it's better to say we got a lot of problems but we're on a journey it's not just journey it's also destination you know postmoderns they focus on the journey uh, is the destination too. You got to have both. But to say we're on our way, we're, we're trying to learn as a process. I think that's much more inviting. People can feel comfortable knowing that they're sinners and their thoughts are not fully formed and things are maybe in flux or a little bit chaotic, but, but it's okay. They'll find a place, they'll be respected. I think that's an important part of our evangelism. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, uh, we preach not ourselves, but Christ is Lord, and ourselves is your servants for his sake. And you start preaching ourselves, whether it's some hero in the church or the church itself, uh, we're, we're really doing it wrong. And that may attract a certain kind of person, and it empowers a certain kind of person. Uh, this actually what I'm preaching on tomorrow evening is about weakness in Second Corinthians. The kinds of things, the qualities uh, that the world looks for in a leader— the man, the woman, they exalt, you know, like power and confidence and credential and smoothness, eloquence. These are these are not uh, qualities that are uh, biblically significant. Uh, and sadly, I think we, we take our cues way too much from the world. Jesus said in, in Mark 10, 
That's how the Gentiles treat each other, lording it over them with all their authority. Not so among you. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Mark 10, 45. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, yeah. And I think we agree with, with what you're saying. And Sounds um, like it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's because I didn't want to disfellowship you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I, I could be wrong. Some things I'm saying may be unbalanced and may be wrong. They may be dangerous. That, that's possible. I've got to keep that in mind. That's a possibility. But if so, let me know. Let's talk about it. Thank you so much for listening to part one of the Douglas Jacobi Demystifying Deconstruction episode. For more on this, listen to part two with the rest of the Space Makers, where we dive a little more into questions like, how should we handle disagreement when we have different conclusions? How should leaders respond to deconstruction? When we disagree with leaders, do we need to submit anyways? And what tips does he have for expanding our view of the Bible? Before we go, we just wanted to spread the word about something we're thinking is going to be pretty cool. I'm going to have Megan tell you a little about it. Hey everyone, it's Meegs here coming to you for an announcement. Um, it's cool because in this uh, conversation around deconstruction, it's almost impossible to not talk about mental health. Uh, for a lot of us, that was the catalyst for our deconstruction journey or thinking about things differently. It's um, been a source for many of us of feeling outcasted or like we just don't fit in or we don't belong or um, can be a large part of the reason why we, um, the church structure or whatever was not working for us anymore. And, or people are just saying the wrong things or there's not enough education or, or awareness of the certain issues that you're going through. And we at Spacemakers just want to let you know that we hear you, we see you. And a lot of us have even been through it as well. Um, and so we're also really excited to announce that the particular church body that we are a part of called the ICOC is putting on a mental health conference. It's going to be um, via online format on October 1st and 2nd of this year. Um, it's going to be talking about restoring emotional health after the global pandemic. And the pandemic was probably a really hard for a lot of us for a plethora of different reasons. Maybe it was more awareness of our mental health issues, or maybe it was loss and coping with grief or coping with the loss of financial or health stability. Um, maybe it's depression, anxiety, or eating disorders or whatever it may be. Um, a lot of us went through a lot during the pandemic and uh, some therapists within our movement really wanted to put something on that would really meet the needs of the people in the ICOC and beyond. So they're putting on this conference. It's going to be really awesome. They have amazing people on that team. Um, we're going to link the website in the show notes so that you can sign up if you want. Um, but it's going to be really great. And we're excited to see all the good things that come from that. So thanks for listening. That's all we have for now. Thanks so much for joining our space.